let's open with prayer, and then uh, we'll dig into the passage. Heavenly Father, we recognize that this is a challenging passage. We recognize that your word is serious. We recognize that you're a holy God. We recognize that you uphold justice and love mercy, and you love. You love so much you sent your son that sinners such as us can find forgiveness, undeserving, but find forgiveness. And Lord, so we are challenged by this text, and we're comforted and loved by this text as we see the heart of our Heavenly Father and the gift of his son, Jesus, and some challenge and encouragement and in pointing on how to live life here in this earth. Pray these things, we pray these things in the name of Jesus, amen. Those of you who um, keep track of the news are pretty familiar. About six or seven weeks ago, Boko Haram, which is a Nigerian militant group, kidnapped 110 girls from a school, kind of a training school. Um, most of us would remember, if we keep up with, history, with, uh, with the news a little bit, we know hey, a couple years back the same thing happened. Um, if you've done some reading with it, you know there was this little girl named Leah. I think she was 15 years old. This girl named Leah popped up in our news feeds over and over and over. And why did her name pop up? Well, those 110 girls, five died in the kidnapping. Um, but 105 girls were brought back home two and a half or three weeks ago. So 105, 105 were kidnapped. Uh, 104, I guess I should say, were brought back. Why wasn't Leah brought back? She's the only one. She stayed in the hands of her captors and is still there right now. Why did she stay? Did she really like her captors? Did she really like the food? Did she like where she got to stay? What made her stay? Well, she wouldn't say the Shahada, the uh, uh, there is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. She would not um, verbalize conversion to Islam. And so 15-year-old is still captured, 104 back with their families. We have a lot of questions about that. Um, we might say, where's the police? Where's the government? Where are our parents? We know different things have gotten thrown around, but those would be questions I would be asking if it was my daughter. Um, we might be asking, why would Islam think this is okay? We might be thinking, look out if somebody did that to my kid. Probably many of us would be thinking that right now. But the foremost question, I think, is, why does she take her Christianity so seriously? Couldn't she just have mumbled a few words, said some things that she said, you know, my toes are crossed or something like that, and just said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll say what you want me to say, and I'll get back, be able to be back with my siblings, with my parents, with my church? Why wouldn't she do that? Well, she took something very seriously, and I will say this, historically in the early church, um, Post-conversion sin, serious post-conversion sin, um, required extra um, policing, if you will. There were kind of the big three, which would be sexual immorality, murder, and, and lapsing in the faith, or being an apostate, or giving up on the faith. Um, smaller sins were considered forgivable by the church. The big three were not considered forgivable in most of the early church. You were done. They took really seriously verses that we're pretty familiar with, like Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. 
In 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Or maybe an Old Testament passage like Numbers 15. Numbers 15 deals with, hey, if you accidentally sin or if you, if you, if you make a mistake and sin, here's some sacrifices, here's some things to do. But then it goes on in Numbers 15 to say, if you sin with a high hand, if you sin in outright rebellion against God, it makes the phrase, you will be cut off from the house of Israel. Basically, it's saying there's no sacrifice for you. You're, 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 you're done for, is the way Numbers 15 reads. And that Numbers 15 is, is referenced in some pretty old letters that have gone back and forth that we're going to look at a little bit today. Tertullian, who was a church father in North, North Africa, not far from where JJ, um, where they are or, or are ministering, was horrified around the year 220 AD when a bishop of Rome made the surprising statement. This bishop of Rome, Callistus, argued that sinning with the big three, adultery, um, murder, or apostasy, does not require excommunication. This Callistus said, hey, we, we can forgive these, and here is why. He says, the church is like Noah's Ark. There's both clean and unclean animals. There are believers and non-believers within the church. Tertullian's really, really horrified, and it gives us a little bit of a picture of what they expected or what was normal at that time, and he says this. He says, we do not forgive apostates. Shall we also forgive adulterers? It's pretty strong language. Now, it's 1,800 years old, but it's pretty strong strong language. 30 years later, by 250 AD, there was violent persecution by Decius, an emperor of Rome, and many of you know some of the stories of the persecution under Decius. Basically, Decius said, hey, we're going to change things up a little bit. You have to worship me, at least in a small part. You can keep your, your same gods, great, do whatever you want with that, but you have to give me either some small sacrifice or some small worship. And so he was squeezing the thumbs a little bit and saying, okay, well, if we can just do this little thing, even if we don't mean it in our hearts, we can get away with it, and we can stay with our families. We can stay with our jobs. We can stay with our church family. Can't we just do this little sacrifice and, and not consider it a big deal? Churches became split into these different factions or different groups. We had our martyrs. Those were the ones that were killed. So picture it in this church here. Okay, let's say they're no longer here. We used to have a whole other section of chairs, but they were martyred. They were killed, and they were our friends and our relatives, our loved ones. And then you have another group, the confessors. The confessors did not deny even under torture. So you have this group of confessors that you have to admit we would look at and say, wow, they were tortured with fire and they, they did not capitulate. They held firm to Christ. Would they not have some elevated status in church? I mean, for me personally, I could say, wow, look at how they were firm. Look at how they endured. Absolutely. And then you had a third group, the lapsed. Now, the, the fallen, and by some reports, up to 75% of congregations might be made up of those that lapsed. Those would be the people that when they walked through the line would kiss the statue or would make the sacrifice. And so if you're sitting here in church, let's picture this. Say you're a parent or a grandparent, uncle, aunt, whatever, and you've got some high school girl that, that you think highly of. She's your daughter, niece, granddaughter, whatever. And she's dead. She's a martyr. She would not capitulate to Decius. She would not say, I, I, I repudiate my God and I follow you. No, she wouldn't do it and she was killed. 
and you're looking in this congregation, and there's someone sitting over there, and they did. It was, let's say, your high school daughter's best friend, and you're saying, she's here, and my daughter's dead? What do I do with this? I have to see them every day. And then you're in church, and this person, maybe a, a year has passed, and they're, let's say some, one of them is teaching or preaching, and you're saying, you denied the faith. And what do we do with, with Timothy? What do we do with numbers? What, how do we do this church together? If you've been in a church where there's factions, put yourself in that situation and say, what would church look like there? When we think through biblical forgiveness, what would that look like? When we think of you just sitting there and dealing with and working through a sovereign good God, what would be going on in your mind? So today we're going to look at serious post-conversion sin. And this is not to call out any one person clearly. This is not to, to um, focus um, like on church discipline. Pastor Mark did a very good job on that. Um, I think maybe a month or six weeks ago. This is not really that purpose. Really, a, a bigger purpose of this is to say, how should I as an individual and how as we should as a church deal with sin, especially that post-conversion sin? And then let's ratchet it up a little bit more. What do we do with confessed sin as opposed to unconfessed sin? What do we do if someone is repentant? Or what do we do if someone is faking repentance? Are we the judge of that? Is it, is it all in God's court? You know, in the very, very early church, they would say, we can't make these decisions. We're going to leave it all to God. You're out of here. And pe then groups of people are saying, well, wait, what about forgiveness in Scripture? Let them in. And we could look through church history, even more modern history, and say, hey, people have said it's most forgiving to say, oh, we're all sinners. Don't worry about it. We've got other people saying, well, if you, if you don't worry about sin, we have a serious problem on our hands. Is the church sinners or is the church saints? What do we do with that? So that's what we want to kick around today. And Hebrews does such a good job, the author of Hebrews does such a good job of working th with us through some really encouraging things and frankly, some really, really challenging things. We're going to see today the confidence of true faith. We're going to see the, the terrifying fear that we each should have of apostasy and the incentive, the strength to endure regardless of circumstances. And uh, maybe you've been in church your entire life. Um, maybe you have not. Maybe you come here as someone who says, I love Jesus so much, I want to know him more. Maybe you come here today and say, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm just an observer. In fact, I'm just here because this person invited me, or I'm just here because of this, or you know, Easter was just a week ago. What, whatever your place is, I'd like us to think together. I'd like us to question ourselves together. We, someone might be saying, well, well, I'm an adulterer. What does that do? Someone might be saying, I've, I've committed murder. What does that do with me? You might say, what is this apostasy thing anyway? Have I done that? Have I not done that? I don't want to do that. Wherever you are, I think we're going to get some good answers today. And I would say this, don't be afraid to ask questions afterwards. There would be multiple people here who would love to talk with you afterwards and uh, share from Scripture answers God has. So let's dig in, first of all, confidence of true faith. I think most of us are here in Hebrews chapter 10 that Adam read for us. And um, let's, let's review a little bit verse 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, and then it's going to go on to some things we can do. But just as a little bit of review, John Lynn referenced these holy places earlier today, this curtain that was torn. And we could look back at, at the temple. We could look back at the tabernacle and talk about this huge curtain that was here, that, that when Jesus died, it was torn, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. But before Jesus' death, how would you get into that holy place? Well, once a year, one guy, the high priest, was able to get into that place. Once a year. And he alone could make atonement, intercession for the people. And this is setting up exactly what, what John started off the service today with. Because of Jesus, we don't need that one guy. We are in here with Jesus now, those who know him as Savior. We have confidence, not just uh, timidity. I, I, I hope everything will work out. I hope I can get in there. It says we have confidence. We have assurance is the idea there to enter the holy places. We can enter the throne room of God, not because of our own effort, not because of our own skill, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it says it's a new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that it is his flesh, and we have this great high priest. Well, our confidence is based on Jesus as a high priest, not on any of the normal things we like to have confidence with. Because we know if, if we're like most people, we like to have confidence in all kinds of things. We like to have confidence in our ability to do this or that. We like to have confidence, and maybe, maybe connected to God, we like to have confidence in, hey, I, I come from a, a good family. Um, when I mention to people that, that I'm, I pastor, help pastor the church here, I hear all the time in Owensboro, more than I've ever heard anywhere in my entire life, oh, I'm a, I'm a Baptist too, my great-grandpa was a Baptist. Or yeah, I'm a Baptist too because my, my cousin Phil is a Baptist. Well, I certainly hope that none of us is a Baptist because cousin Phil is a Baptist. I, I certainly hope that we're not a Baptist because just our, our, our grandpa had a religious system, and so we're going to do that too. I certainly hope that wherever we stand, we stand on because of what Jesus Christ has done. We say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So we like to have confidence in different things. Let's say it's family. It might be going to church. It might be doing things. It might be weighing things and saying, hey, I'm doing better than somebody else. You, uh, many of you know that I'm, I'm the a director at a homeless shelter here in town, and I can't tell you the amount of people that might come, and they sometimes even jokingly will say, you know, I've been messing up a lot lately, so I'm hooking you guys up with this. Almost saying we have these little good-bad scales, and my bad scale's been up way high, but now I'm going to deliver some stuff to you, and it might bump these up a little bit. And we can laugh at that or think, oh, that's crazy. But deep down, we kind of like to think that way. We kind of like to think, well, I, I've, I've done some good stuff, and I'm getting some merit. I'm, I'm getting some good in with God or society or my family or whatever, Scripture is pretty clear that that is not the case. We shouldn't have confidence in all those things. Maybe, maybe at this time there'd be a lot of confidence in Old Testament sacrificial system. And we look at it now, we look back and it seems so long ago. Slaughtering a lamb, it just seems so really, really. But at that time they're saying, hey, you cannot have confidence in this. And a lot of Hebrews chapter 10 the earlier part that we're not going to dig into all of it is saying you cannot have confidence in this. It says, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Well, let's see. Let's look at verse 3. It says, but in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then it goes into verse 10. And it says, um, earlier it said, you know, Christ says, I have come to do your will. It says, by that will... 
in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So you might be saying, oh, I have confidence in this, I have confidence in that. You might even be saying, well, I have confidence that my sin is taken care of because I've done these actions. The scripture here is saying it cannot be. You might even say, well, I grew up in a religious tradition where we were taught this, where we believed it deeply, and and you very well may have been. That doesn't mean that it's biblically true because the Bible is pretty clear that cannot be. So if we've been fighting sin and our own power is an important first question to ask. And if we had... The Bible is pretty clear, hey, the good news is Jesus Christ died for sinners. Jesus Christ died for people that were in rebellion against him. He brought them to himself through his, through his death on the cross that sinners such as I and such as you can be forgiven, not from our own merit, but because what Christ has done. And it says, so if we respond in faith, what should we do? Well, let's look at verses 22, 23, and 24. It says, let us, first of all, draw near with a true heart, a real heart, a pure heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing is we need to draw near to God. Secondly, we need to hold fast. It says in 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And we are weak and we do struggle, but it says hold fast without wavering Not because we are so strong, not because we have the ability, but because of what? We should hold fast for he who promised is faithful. Not our own ability, but his. And the third one is let us consider how to stir up, how to stimulate, how to provoke provoke one another to love and good works or good service. And then it goes right into verse 25 and it says, not neglecting to meet together, or tent together, or synagogue together, as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So I need to be a good churchman. I need to be serious about being other believers. Not just so I can come here and check something off a list, but as Pastor Mark has been preaching week after week after week in the Good Churchman series that just finished last week, we need each other. I can look out at this group and say, I need that guy. I need that lady. I need that kid. Because they encourage me. They challenge me. They're willing to rebuke me. They're willing to say, hey, here's the Savior. How are we following him? We're used to, and maybe in American context, of I could go to this church or this church or this church. I'm around Christians here, here, and here. And we can think to ourselves, ah, I'm good. But as we look at a bigger context worldwide, there are so many believers out there today that have no one coming alongside them, or very few. People that would just give about anything to meet with other believers and say, I got to sing songs of praise to Jesus with other people. I got to have someone encourage me. I had someone even challenge me from scriptures. We had copies of scriptures in our hands. We are so gifted as a nation. We are so gifted with the freedoms that we have. And so when I come on Wednesday nights, there's times all of us come on a Wednesday night and we feel like, 
I had a really tiring day at work today. It would be so much easier just to go home or to do this or do that. But I think to myself as I'm driving here, as I have to kind of go by here on my way home, I think often I'm really tired. I think I'm exhausted because I've talked with 100 people today and dealt with problems and dealt with struggles. And as, we're work, as I'm working my way here, I'm saying, remember when we prayed for this lady? Remember when we cried as we prayed for this young man? Remember as we saw this struggle and we saw God work? Remember as we dealt with this hard thing and it didn't go the way we prayed and asked, but we prayed in God's will and God answered it in his perfect way? I need these people and, and, and they need me. We need each other. Do not give up meeting together. It's not so you can check it off the list because we desperately need each other. And it says, all the more as we see the day approaching, saying, times are a-changing. It's not always going to be like this. Christ will return. Be ready. So that is why we can have confidence and must have confidence in true faith. So if you're thinking through sin, and you're thinking it through serious sin, and let's be trying to think about our own personal sin and not, you know, great aunt Tilly or this person or that person. As we think through sin, the first thing we have to think about is, how great is my Savior? How great was his death on the cross? How effective was his death on the cross? I have confidence in true faith based on Jesus as high priest, and I desire to respond with action, with heart. So that's the confidence of true faith. The second thing we want to see, starting in verse 26, is the fear of apostasy. Let's read verse 26. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, so things are changing up here, okay? For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, this previous whole section's been saying, hey, we have comfort because of sacrifice. We've been hearing Old Testament sacrifice, not the answer. Old Testament sacrifice, not the answer. But there is a sacrifice of one Jesus that is the answer. So if we'd been receiving this letter, we'd be hearing that over and over. Chapter 9 has the same thinking. We'd be hearing it over and over, and sacrifice is good because it's Jesus' sacrifice on my behalf, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And then this verse says that sacrifice is nothing. There remains no sacrifice for sins if we go on sinning deliberately. So the ah, confidence of Jesus' sacrifice, we should be feeling tension right here. We should be saying, whoa, 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 whoa. what changed? thing that changes we're bringing up sin so what is sin we could define it um, pretty narrowly this way sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of god in acts in attitude or in nature most of us when we deal with sin our kids when we deal with sin your grandkids when we deal with sin like to think of actions i sinned when i took a punch but i didn't sin when i felt angry at him I sinned when I cheated this guy, but I didn't sin when I was mapping out how I was going to be cheating this guy. The Bible is pretty clear that mind is just as big and bad as actions. Um, we think of Exodus 20 when giving up the law. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, ox, or donkey. It doesn't say that any action is being taken. It's what's going on in a person's mind. We could look in Matthew 5 when we talk of anger and lust. A lot of that can be inside, inside our own mind, what's going on there. The question might, we might ask, are some sins worse than others? 
for a person who claims to follow Christ. So I'm going to get, we've got all kinds of different backgrounds here. So you might have a background that teaches this. Someone else ha- might have a background that teaches that. But a, a big deal in Owensboro might be the, the ideas of mortal and venial sins. Moral being sins that you can only find forgiveness from through confession to a priest and acts of penance. Uh, venial sins being that people may forgive. And, and 1 John 5 is usually a text that, that, that would be used to, to prove that. That there's mortal sins, sins unto death, you know, mortal. And venial sins, sins that will not kill you. And um, I did a fair amount of reading there over the past few weeks just because I was curious through church history who believed what on some of those. And there'd be people that obviously most of us in here respect quite highly that do believe in mortal and venial sins. You look at Jerome or Augustine or some others like that, Thomas Aquinas, some others. Um, a thing to think about is something that, that several of the reformers said, and think about this phrase, this quote with me. It says this, All sin is rebellion against God's law and therefore deserving of eternal punishment. So all sin is mortal and that it deserves punishment. But all sin is venial and it's covered by Christ's merit not our own. This is talking to the believer. So all sin is mortal in that any sin, if, if I've sinned once, I am guilty of all, right? James 2.10, failed in one point, guilty of all. If we go into James 3.1, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So are there different levels of sin? And I would say, yes, there are. All sin makes us guilty before God, but some sin carries more weight in it. Some verses in Scripture, some sins in Scripture give a lot more weight, and some do not. Uh, we could also say all sin makes one guilty, but if, if we had a, a, a brand new believer, someone's a young believer, or let's say um, they just got out of juvie and they're, they're learning of Christ, okay? Um, um, my dad used to tell stories occasionally when he was a brand new Christian. He had never been influenced by church at all, and some of the things he thought would be a, a good choice, a God-honoring choice, were not, but he thought he was doing it to be, to be helpful, and as he read the word, and he was under the preaching of the word, and he was around other believers, God refined him and refined him and trained him and taught him. Let's say someone gets out of juvie, and they get mad, and they, they take a swing at you. They try to hit you in the face. It's like, whoa, we've got this young new believer, okay? Would that be a little bit different than if, you know, Pastor Keith, either of the Pastor Keiths, got kind of worked up at us, and they took a swing at you? That would, that would, that would be some differences there, Right? So James is saying those who teach are, are going to be judged with, with, with a little bit more strictness. And I think we can think that way. Also, all sin making one guilty, some sin being dealt with more in Scripture. Another question as we're going through these questions under the fear of apostasy. What is apostasy? I keep using that term, and some of you might be saying, oh, no, exactly what that is. Other people might be saying, what, what, are, you, what are you talking about? Well, apostasy could be defined this way, defiance of an established system or authority, a rebellion, an abandonment or breach of faith, could be used with a political revolt or defecting to another army. Well, if you can picture someone, you know, fighting in Vietnam and then going over to the other side, that would be like apostasy in an army. So this is bigger than, you know, Kentucky fans becoming Louisville fans. This is bigger than, you know, those kind of things. You guys, okay. I've been learning. Can I... Next week will be our two-year anniversary, anniversary since moving here, and um, I was not aware of the intensity of the rivalry until moving here, and I'm still learning. But apostasy is so much bigger than my team versus your team. 
Apostasy is, is really saying, I'm going to fall away from key doctrines of the Bible, and I'm going to believe heresy. And you say, no, before it just says sin, it says if, if you sin. But he's saying if you go on sinning, if you continue in sin, if you're rebellious in sin and you just keep on sinning, you are apostatizing. You are saying, I have no part with Christ. It's a renunciation of the Christian faith and abandonment of Christ. And what's the end result of apostasy? And these are hard, hard verses to read. So it says at the end of 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And then it gives an Old Testament example from Leviticus 24. In Leviticus 24, it's talking about a group, if they blaspheme God and they go and follow after other deities, what should they deserve? And that's this Leviticus idea is here in verse 28, and it says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So he's saying, so in the Old Testament, if you apost- apostatize against God, if you left God, if you said, okay, I used to follow God, and now I'm following these other gods, two or three witnesses gets you stoned and killed and dead. And you're out of the family of God, and you're going to burn in eternity. That's what he's saying from Leviticus. And he's saying, if you continue in sin, this is you. When I told my brother-in-law, who's a pastor um, and, a, and, a, and a rancher, I said, uh, he said, hey, you're, you're preaching on Sunday. What are you preaching on? And I said, I've been really challenged by Hebrews chapter 10, and I'm preaching on it. And he said, oh, boy. He wrote me back a text, and he said, that is a really challenging text for me. Where's my heart? Or something along those lines. Aaron's 42, loves the Lord deeply, serves the Lord. But every single one of us should be reading this and hearing this and saying, where am I? dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Then he makes two arguments, 29 through 31. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned or trampled upon the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant, said to be defiled, that blood is no good, by which Jesus was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Who said that? God. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That's in the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32. And then it says in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's saying God is judge. God is, God is not afar off. God is not some wooden idol. God is not some idea in my mind. God is not some figment of what I think God should be. It says God of the universe is the judge and he's serious about sin. And every person in here should say, oh my. This is serious. We go on in verse 32. Actually, let me finish up just a little bit here. I, yeah, let me, let me hit just a little bit more in here. So the question we have to ask here is, do we lose our salvation? There are people all over the world who would say, hey, here's a great passage that teaches us we lose our salvation. Um, John Lynn, J. Poe, others this morning have reminded us, the songs reminded us, he will hold me fast. Have read to us from John chapter 10. In my hand, God's got us. 
So what is this saying here? What is it doing with it? Other people might say, well, what do you do with this words like sanctified at the end of 29? Sanctified is a theological term that we use to say that someone is set apart unto God. What do we do with that? Well, as we look through that list here, that, that can read for people that are true followers of Christ. But it can also read for people that are, are kind of involved in the group, saying they're part of the group, saying, hey, these are my people, and not truly being a child of God. Um, a huge emphasis that we need to have is that true faith endures. Um, those words in, throughout the book of John, abide, continue, remain, endure. Endurance, those who truly are saved will endure. And a, and a thing that I think will really help us think through this is, what part of salvation did we earn? J. Poe referenced that, and it's very, very true. What part of atonement, so Jesus' death for our sins on the cross, what part of atonement did you have a part in? Did you earn? Nothing. How about what part of justification, being declared righteous in the eyes of God, what part of that did I earn? Nothing. It was a judge declaring, slamming that gavel down. What part of adoption, God making me part of his family, did I earn? Nothing. What does it say in, in Deuteronomy 8? Hey, uh, hey, Israel, don't you dare think that I chose you, that I love you, that I set my love upon you because of your goodness. It is not. I set my love upon you so that you would be a picture to the nations around you, and because of the evil of the nations around you, I set you out and I chose you. And I wanted people to be able to say it wasn't because of their strength or their goodness of any of those things, but because, ooh, look at their God. And that's the same thing with salvation. It's not because, oh, wow, she is such a nice girl. She's a Christian. She earned her salvation. No, it is God setting his love upon a broken person of which all of us are broken. We could look in Ezekiel when the, the story of reaching out. He's going along the road and he says, hey, I, I looked down and there you were, this new baby, and you're covered with blood and you have nothing. And it's a pretty gross chapter almost as, until we see the picture of I set my love upon you and I washed you and I cleansed you and I gave you new clothes and I gave you jewelry and I made you good and nice and right, not because of what you value you had as you were laying there in your blood, but because I set my love upon you. And that is the biggest reminder when we think through losing salvation. What part did we earn? None of it. This is a very, very, very strong warning. And a warning that we should say, not just, oh, I'm a Christian, or, you know, I think I prayed a prayer when I was six, and so I'm good. No, no, no. This is much stronger than that. It's saying, what part of Christ do you have? Are you with Christ? Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, um, I think 3 verse 12 through 14. I want to read this because this is a good reminder to kind of couple together with Hebrews 10, knowing that Hebrews 6 is kind of a sister passage to Hebrews 10. You can do some reading there this afternoon if you would like. But look at Hebrews 3 starting with verse 12. It says, take care. And this is a warning. Take care, brothers. Notice he calls them brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we, we must not have a, a 
high-handed look and say, oh, I'm good, or I don't struggle with that, or, wow, there's somebody, you know, eight chairs over from me, and they really struggle with this sin, but, man, I'm good because I don't struggle with that. It says, take heed, take heed. And then it says in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end, firm to the end. And most of us probably know people that confessed Christ at one age or at one time and now would even verbalize, I want nothing to do with them. I remember as a pastor dealing with a pastor's wife, and she was much older than I, and I was a pretty young pastor at the time, and she said, hey, you've got my granddaughter in your church, and she is becoming, she is going through the process of church discipline, but you can't because I know she's a Christian. And I said, uh, this girl says she's not a Christian. And she says, well, it doesn't matter what she says. I was with her when she prayed when she was five, so I know she's good. And I said, ma'am, I respect you a lot, but that's not what the word teaches. These are serious warnings. Endure, 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 have firm confidence to the end. In no way should we add to that, oh, it's my goodness to the end. Oh, no, 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 no but it's confidence in Jesus Christ firm to the end. So we absolutely need to fear apostasy. As we, as we continue on, we need to have confidence in uh, true faith, be terribly fearful of the evil of apostasy, and we need the strength to endure. If you could go back with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll finish out the chapter. It talks about some really tough suffering right here. It starts in verse 32. And says, but think back. It says, but recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And then read some of these. It says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Publicly. And sometimes being partners with those treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Well, I'll just stop right there. How many of you would be okay with someone coming in and tearing up your house? Or maybe you say, well, I, I rent. How about if they came out to your car out there and just tore the thing apart? And when you said, what are you doing? They said, you're a Christian and we're allowed to do this and tear the thing to pieces. What if they stole, let's say you have rental properties, they stole them. What if they took your house and put you out on the street? It says, and every single one of us is saying, I live in America. It's 2018. This cannot happen. It happens worldwide. It's not happening here right now, but that doesn't mean what's happening right here doesn't mean it's always going to be this way. And it says here, hey, this is how serious you were, you are about Jesus. When these horrible things happen, you keep trusting. And we say, how could you even do it? Because then it finishes off, um, you did it joyfully. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How can that be? Well, it pushes us to Jesus. It pushes us to Hebrews chapter 11. I just have a few. We could read the entire chapter. But look at some of these. Um, Hebrews chapter 11, starting with verse 13. says, These all died in faith, not having the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. It's talking about these Old Testament saints that didn't get to experience Jesus. They were looking to him. They were looking to the promised Messiah. They were anticipating. They even 
they, they saw sacrifice anticipating a future sacrifice. They, they were looking for this Messiah. Oh, we need the Messiah. We need the Messiah. But they didn't get to experience the Messiah. He was future to them. But still, they greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. This world is not my home. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then go down a little bit farther to verse 26. This is talking about Moses. It says, Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of all of Egypt. Um, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. And I think that's a challenge to every single one of us here, because if my house was plundered, if a bunch of dudes with guns came in and tore my house apart and threw my kids out and threw people in jail and abused people, I, I can't tell you the anger that I would feel and, I'm, and it's never even happened to me. I would feel, and many of you might feel the same, you, you know, I'd go crazy. And he's saying here, looking to a future and a hope doesn't mean it's not going to hurt. It doesn't mean it's not going to be anguish. But you're saying, my eyes are on Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. That's what Hebrews is telling us today. Looking back is tough suffering. I can think of Leah in Nigeria right now and think, how does her dad stand it? He's truly a child of God, he says. I physically, mentally, and emotionally cannot stand it, but I have to look to Christ. I get to look to Christ. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his love. My hope is in him. That is the only way to look. So looking back at that tough suffering and then looking forward, starting in verse 35. It says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence. So when tough things happen, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance. I think we can all echo that and say, we have need for endurance. Because you might say, well, at my job it's really difficult. Or, you know, some family that I'm dealing with is really difficult. But if I had this, 33 and 34, we all have need of endurance. We are all challenged in this text. We need endurance. So that, the second half of verse 36, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And many of us might look at that verses there and say, well, how about let's make the will of God this? You know, I want the will of God to be nice things in my life. I would like the will of God, um, you know, to be success. I would like the will of God to be, you know, new cars, new house, stuff, 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 stuff. And that really sells, especially a lot of that in Africa right now, a lot of that in North America right now, a lot of that in South America right now. But what does it say? The will of God, you may receive what is promised. You have need of endurance. When you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Then he says, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. This is quoting from Habakkuk 2. It says, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And by no pleasure, he means what? What does the very next verse say? So my soul has no pleasure in him. We are not those who shrink back and are 
destroyed. So no pleasure equals destroyed. Again, these are serious, serious warnings from God. But those who have faith can preserve their souls. So what do we do? We're sitting here April 8, 2018. What do we do if we or if others are caught in sin? Some in the very, very early church said that people had to show extreme sorrow. So if, uh, if, if one of you is caught in sin, I need to go up and, and I need to see that they are broken and crying and contrite. So the psalmist talks about a, a contrite heart. It can be uh, a, an important, important thing there. Um, some in the early church said that someone had to show extreme sorrow and also had to do some things to prove that sorrow. Now there can be some health in, say someone here stole money from the church. And they came up in front of the church, they were repentant, truly repentant, and they came up here and they said, I confess my sin to God, I want to confess my sin to you, I want to turn from my sin, Um, I found forgiveness from God, I would like your forgiveness as well, and I'm going to make restitution. There's health in that. It's a healthy thing. If you're a parent or grandparent and, and you don't require those kind of things out of your kids, your kids are going to struggle, right? God expects that from us. Um... But how about if we add to that and say, you have to feel and show sorrow, you have to prove some things, and actually, let me define the things that you have to prove. In fact, let me have some proofs like the treasury of merit, or, or penance, or indulgences. Some things that grew out of a good desire to see right repentance, but I'm going to add a stack of extra biblical things to prove it to me so I can help you get forgiveness. Is something broken with the idea of Jesus Christ being our high priest when we're doing that? There absolutely is. Absolutely. So what do we do if we or others are caught in sin? The first thing is to agree with God and turn from that sin. Um, if you look at uh, David, uh, King David, in um, 1 Samuel 12, and he is deeply in sin, and he doesn't see his sin as being a problem. He has, has committed adultery, he has committed murder, and he doesn't see the problem. He does not see it. And Nathan the prophet goes to him and tells him this story, and David says, this man should die. And Nathan says what to him? You are this man. And if you look at the repentance that David has, and then if you read also Psalm 51, so those would be good ones to read even even this afternoon, um, 1 Samuel 12, Psalm 51. Look at the repentance in Psalm 51. This is not someone saying, yeah, I I could have done better. Yeah, I mean, if if I had a mulligan on this, I might, you know, change this up a little bit or that, or yeah, I mean, it was bad, but it wasn't nearly as bad as, man, my next door neighbor, we got bad over there. Psalm 51, David says, against you and you alone have I sinned. And he has committed adultery against this woman and her husband. And he's had the husband killed. But he recognizes all sin is an affront and is against a holy God centrally. So I would say that we need to, we must agree with God and turn from sin. Uh, And then what do we do if, if we're dealing with someone else who is caught in sin? Well, Pastor Mark, again, dealt with church discipline with unrepentant sin. So we're not really going to deal with unrepentant. Let's say someone is, is repenting of their sin, and we're working with them. And one of the just wonderful things with a local church is that 
you are to know other people well enough that they are to rejoice when you rejoice and hurt when you hurt. And one of the broken things, if a church is humongous and you're not involved in at least small groups or Sunday school classes or something, if you don't know people well enough that they can rejoice when you rejoice and hurt when you hurt, something is wrong. A big answer to that would be, come when the church doors are open and you get to know people more. And at first you might think, oh, but I used to watch this on this night or I used to do this at this time. But you know what you will find? Early on you'll think, I don't know where to sit or I don't know who to talk to. You know what you're going to find after a little while? Hey, this other believer comes and talks to you and they say, hey, you can do it. Or you find, hey, they, they encourage me or they challenge me. And then you get to the point where people that you once didn't know at all are people that you think about during the week, that you're praying for during the week. And then times of crisis come. Who do you turn to? We have all dealt with people, or maybe we've dealt ourselves when we have nowhere to turn. We have no human friends to turn to. But the contrast of that is a local body like this that says, I see you hurting. I love you. What can I do? I will hug you. I will hang out with you. I will pray for you. I will come alongside you. I'll bring you pizza, whatever it is. You know, I want to care for you. And one of the challenges that you find is if you're coming to church once a month, twice a month, Sunday morning, and I don't really know who to say hi to. I'm kind of an introvert. I just leave again. You don't get to know people like that. And you have to have that. Christianity was not made to be done on an island. It's impossible. It is a community thing. I link arms here and I link arms there and we are together. And whether you are a very much an introvert like my father or you're very much an extrovert like someone else, we all need each other desperately. It's a gift from God to have it. So we have, let's say, um, we've dealt with what to do with our own sin. What do we do if we're dealing with someone else? And they're repentant. They're verbally repentant. Um, turn with me to Galatians 6. Galatians 6 is just a really good, um, clear, th this is what we must do. Uh, Galatians 6, and we'll just look at, um, we'll just look at verse maybe 1 and 2. Um, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, big, little, whatever, if anyone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too are tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So if there's sin, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. It's never helpful to someone to go up to him and say, with anger, with vitriol, with uh, you're an idiot and I'm not, or I'm perfect and you're such a sinner and I can't stand you. That has no part in God's family. This is, I'm a broken person, you're a broken person, here's a holy God, how can we restore you to rightness? And that might be some accountability. It might be daily phone calls. It might be meeting together, all those things. But it's a spirit of gentleness and also watching yourself. We should never say, man, I, I would never do that. Take heed lest you too be tempted and bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. I think another thing that we can do is as we read Scripture, um, we could secondarily say you could read some church history, which can be really encouraging, saying, hey, here are people that struggled and failed and sinned and all have fallen short. But look at how God has restored, whether you're reading the, the life story of Augustine or, or Jim Elliot or, or, or a multitude of people. 
that have dealt with sin and God kept bringing them, bringing them, bringing them to himself. Very, very healthy. As we look in scripture, we could go through all kinds of different people. If we look at, you know, at the life of Peter. Here, at the cross, denying Christ three times. Mortal sin, done for. All sin is mortal. He's guilty before God. He's sorrowful. Read First and Second Peter. Thanks be to God, he is forgiven, right? I think it's a huge, huge encouragement. So, so as we conclude here, um, a few thoughts to, to leave you with, to leave us with. So uh, a, a decade after the previous argument between Callistus and Tertullian, um, there was a fair amount of water under the bridge as letters are going back and forth. We just have, you know, we don't have all of those letters. We have snippets of some of them. And some of them will have like the letter and it'll be quoting the guy who wrote, but we don't have his letter. They'll say, well, you said this and you said this. But a decade later, while they're arguing about whether the church should forgive sin, whether the church cannot forgive sin was the point of one, two other prominent theologians opened it up again, uh, Novation and Cyprian. And as a side note, those of you who are, are, are having babies in the next few months, here's some great names, you know, you can think about using. Novation and, and Cyprian. Um, Novation said this. He said, the church is a group of saints. The church is a group of set-apart people. And he's writing a letter to Cyprian. Cyprian and Novation are writing letters back and forth to each other. And he says, hey, the church is a group of saints. Okay? Cyprian writes back and he says, no, it is not. It's a hospital for sinners. Broken people. It's a hospital for sinners. They need care. They need nursing. They need transfusions. They need encouragement. All those things. And we're, you know, letters could go back and forth. We discussed it with a youth group this morning. And we came to the point that I hope all of us come to and say, yeah, it is a hospital for sinners and it is a group of saints. Broken people who need Jesus. Not a bunch of perfect people. Not a bunch of hypocrites that say, well, I've arrived. If only everybody else could arrive as well. Um, The good news says that sinners can receive forgiveness because of the atoning blood of Jesus. And while perfect in declaration from God immediately, sinlessness will not be fully ours until eternity. We have to live in this human body, often messy, but the way God has chosen it to be. So a couple other thoughts here. The parable of the wheat and the weeds. We could go there and we could read it, but the basic idea of the parable of the wheat and the weeds says, hey, there's this huge field. Matthew 13, there's this huge field and there's some wheat in there that's really small and there's some weeds in there that are really small. And if there's any farmers out in this group, you know, if you have barley, rye, wheat, and a few other kinds of weeds or grasses, they look almost identical. I can't tell them apart when they're short. But you can sure tell if it's supposed to be a wheat field and there's a bunch of rye in it, what's that rye going to do? It's going to be two feet taller and if there's too much of it, they're going to dock you when you combine, right? You're going to get in trouble. There's too much rye and with your wheat. And so um, that parable is saying, hey, in an assembly like this, in, in the group, there are going to be those that are truly following Jesus. They are the wheat. And there is going to be weeds in the group. And it's not our job. It says, he says, the, the worker said, hey, should we go out there and, and root up those weeds? And he says, no, 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 leave it until the end. And so it is not our job to go through this group and say, huh, that guy. I've been watching that guy. Ah, oh, that late. No, that is not the purpose of, of that parable. We are not to do that. But, but what are we to do? To understand that there are unbelievers in the midst. There are those that might have 
professed faith as a six-year-old, as a 66-year-old, and are not truly of the faith. And we can rejoice when someone, even in this group, I'm sure there's many people who said, hey, you know what? I prayed a prayer of salvation when I was seven or 10 or 21, but you know, I, I never really followed Christ. He didn't rule my life. I wasn't truly a believer. I even went to church. But late, at a later point, I realized I am a sinner in need of forgiveness because of Jesus' work on the cross. Nothing that I can do, I'm going to trust in him and him alone. He is a ruler of my life. That is a parable of the wheat and the weeds. And one of the things I think is interesting about that, kind of a, a side note to that, you're at the, the, the Last Supper. You're in the table, okay? There's 13 people there. There might have been a, a larger group in the upper room, but you've got at least this central group that knows each other so well. You've got the 12 disciples, and you've got Jesus, right? And Jesus says, um, he's talking, and he says, hey, the one and what's going to dip, you know, he says that. And what do the people say? He says, one of you is going to betray me. And remember what the people are saying? What the other disciples? Hey, hey, Jesus, is it me? Hey, hey, who is it? And I hear that, and I think, surely you would know it's Judas, right? You'd be saying, eh, he's been pretty shaky all along. You know, he's been eh, not so good. It's not true. He was the treasurer. I mean, he'd be a very trusted person. They did not know. There's certainly unbelievers that you interact with that you think are following Christ. Could be in this group that you yourself are saying, I'm a follower of Christ. Do we truly know him? Long term, the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them, and those who endure till the end will be saved. But truly, this passage today, in dealing with sin, is a lot like the entire book of 1 John, the letter of 1 John. And over and over and over in 1 John, he says, hey children, hey little children, hey little children. And then he'll word things basically saying this, you, you are little children, are you not? Hey children, hey children, are, are you truly children? And I think that's a fair question for us to close with today. Am I truly a child of God based on the work of Jesus Christ on the cross? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, weak people, broken people. Lord, there is a variety of people in this group, people that love you deeply, desperately. Maybe some people are just watching, maybe a casual observer, maybe an interested observer. Lord, let each one of us revel and the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that sinners such as us can be forgiven. And those that do not know you as Savior will repent and turn and trust in you as Savior and Lord today and be gloriously saved. And those of us who know you as Savior will say, oh, oh Lord, please help me to fight sin. I cannot do it on my own. It is way too strong for me. Satan does go about as a roaring lion, but I have a Savior who's so much greater than Satan. I have Jesus Christ the righteous who is interceding on my behalf an advocate interceding with the Father. In him do we trust. Pray these things in Jesus' name.